Genesis 16, 7 to 16. Genesis 16, verse 7. Now, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given, a, uh, given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His <laughs> hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Ro'i. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. In verse 7, let's first deal with the location. The location is by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Where is Shur? Remember, she is an Egyptian, and this is actually a place on the way to Egypt. She wants to go back to Egypt. She wants to return to her homeland or native land. Now, how do we know that? Chapter, chapter 20, verse 1, mentions it again. 20, verse 1. Now, Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he journeyed in Gerar. Kadesh is in the south. The Negev is in the south. That's what Negev means, the south country, the south southern region of the land of Canaan. And he settled over there between Kadesh and Shur. If you look at the map, or if you can visualize a map of Israel, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean um, Sea, uh, if the eastern coast is Israel or Canaan, to the southeast is the land of Egypt. To the so I'm sorry, to the southwest. To the southwest is the land of Egypt. And this is likely where she was going. Now, chapter 25 will tell us some more. Chapter 25, verse 18. Chapter 25, verse 18 says, And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled, NASB says, in defiance of all his relatives, when actually I think it should say, um, to the east of all his relatives. Okay? So, this land of Shur is south of Canaan or Israel and east of the land of Egypt. It's likely that she was on the way back to Egypt. She wanted to flee there instead of staying with Abraham. Think about that. Abraham and his household, it was a godly place. It was a rare place. 
There weren't very many places on the earth where the faith was maintained. And yet, that didn't matter to her. She didn't care about it. She heard things, she saw things, but she didn't care about those things. She cared more about returning to Egypt. This is actually the way the people of Israel were under Moses. They didn't care what Moses had and what Moses promised by the word of the Lord to them, spiritually speaking and even physically speaking in the land of Canaan. They didn't care. They wanted to go back to Egypt because they had their minds fixed on earthly things. Furthermore, verse 7 mentions the angel of the Lord. Verse 10 also says, the angel of the Lord spoke. This word angel in the original language is a word malak, malak. Malak means an angel in terms of a heavenly being created by God that served the will of God on the earth. And they also worship him. As a group, they're called the heavenly hosts. That's the, what, what the word angel means in the Bible and in the Old Testament. But the word in the original language, malak, is also translated in our Bibles as messenger. And this messenger could be a prophet of God. In Haggai chapter 1, he's called the messenger of the Lord. He's called the Malach of the Lord. He's called that. Kings have emissaries or ambassadors, and they are called messengers. And even the priests, they are called messengers of the Lord, such as in Malachi 2, 1 to 9. So the word messenger or malak can be translated messenger in various ways, or if it's referring to a heavenly being, it's translated angel. Now, our translators believe this is a heavenly being. That's why they render it angel. Now, having said that, I don't think that this angel is a created angel, but I think he is the eternal messenger of God, or prophet of God, apostle of God, the word of God, Christ. That's who this is. That's who this is. Now, first, let me try to show it from the Old Testament. Then we'll look at some more cross-references into the New Testament. Why do I think this is the Lord Jesus before his incarnation? Did Hagar and others, did they know who they were dealing with. Did they know? Let's see the evidence. Firstly, in this passage, verse 9, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Thus says the Lord, I was sent from heaven for this message to you. Does it say any of that? No. He just speaks. Right? He just speaks. He doesn't say that he is speaking on behalf of someone else as though he were an inferior being. He doesn't say it that way. He just speaks. Then notice in 10, he says, I will greatly multiply your descendants. So who's going to be the source of blessing? This messenger of the Lord is. The messenger of the Lord is. He doesn't say the Lord is. The messenger of the Lord is. He is. And then he says in verse, or it says in verse 13, Then she, Hagar, called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. It doesn't say the messenger of the Lord. Now the text, that is Moses, says, Moses is saying it in verse 13, 
Moses said, it was the Lord who spoke to her. So he drops this additional name, messenger of the Lord, and just says, the Lord. The Lord spoke to her. And then, this is the name, you are a God who sees. Meaning, he is observant and caring about the things that happen on the earth. That's what she means by that. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Hagar herself knew that the Lord from heaven visited her, not just a created angel, but the Lord himself, because she expected to die. How is it that I'm still alive, since I know sinful men cannot have proper fellowship with God? They cannot. They cannot even be in God's presence. So, have I even remained alive? She knew that God himself appeared to her. She knew that. Furthermore, we have examples of this messenger appearing in the book of Genesis and some commentary on it. Notice chapter 17, verse 1. 17, verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, appeared to Abram and said to him, the Lord appeared. After this discourse, where he introduces the covenant of circumcision and specifies that Sarah will conceive Isaac and Isaac is the son of promise. After all this, look what it says in verse 22, 17:22, And when he finished talking with him, that is, when God finished talking with Abraham, God went up from Abraham. What do you mean, went up? He went up because he came down to talk to Abraham and to appear to him in person. That's what it means. He appeared to him, verse 1, so he came down from heaven, and then he went up to heaven after he dialogued with Abraham and announced the covenant of circumcision. We have, if we read very carefully, which we won't be able to do today, 18.1 to 19.29, Genesis 18.1 to 19.29, there three men appear. Two men are eventually called angels, created being angels, and one of those three men who appeared in human form to Abraham and Sarah one of them was called the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, several times. Yes. And even it says that when this one who appeared came and went to Sodom, after he dialogued with Abraham and Sarah, he went to Sodom, it says in 1924, then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. That sounds like two persons there called Lord. The Lord reigned while he's there near Sodom. Brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. One is there present and the other one is in heaven. So this is Christ calling upon the Father. Now it's time to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Furthermore, we'll go to chapter 40... uh, No, no, let's go to chapter 32. Chapter 32 for Jacob, and this will explain the next passage. Chapter 32. 
Jacob wrestles with the man. Remember? He wrestles with the man. But notice, it will start at verse 24. 32, 24. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It says, a man wrestled with him. A man. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He strove with God and men and prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Jacob says that this place, oh, first he asked the name and the Lord, or the, this man, rebuffs him and says, why are you asking my name? So then he says, Peniel. He calls that place where this incident occurred, Peniel. What does Peniel mean? Peniel means face of God. In Hebrew, it means face of God. And why does he name that location face of God? For he said, 30, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. He, like Hagar, is amazed that God encountered him personally and physically, and yet he did not get put to death. He knew God was there, had appeared to him. A confirmation of that and all of this we'll see in Genesis 48. Genesis 48, 15. 48, 15. This is also Jacob saying these words of blessing to Joseph, okay? This is Jacob, the patriarch of chapter 32, and he is blessing Joseph, his son, Joseph and Joseph's sons. 48.15, and he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, may the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, May the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He says God's name twice, and then in parallel to God's name, he says the angel. He's talking about the same person, right? Sure. But he calls God God twice, and then once he calls God an angel. Why? Because he's talking about the incident, he's reflecting upon the incident in chapter 32, at least that incident. Because there in chapter 32, there was a man who appeared, and he knew that that man was God. That's why. Okay? One more place, Hosea. Hosea chapter 12. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea chapter 12. 
Hosea chapter 12. Hosea wrote hundreds of years later. Jacob lived about 18, 1900 B.C., and Hosea lived in 700 B.C., 700 B.C., or about 750 B.C. That's when Hosea lived. Notice what he says. Hosea 12, verse 3. Speaking of the nation when they were not yet born, but figuratively speaking, metaphorically speaking, in Jacob. Okay? Verse 3. Hosea 12, 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Contended with God is Genesis, you have striven with God. Okay? Contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he, God, spoke with us. Who is he who spoke with us? Even the Lord, or that is the Lord, namely the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his name, Jehovah. Jehovah, the Lord Yahweh, the God of hosts. He's the one who spoke to Jacob. He's the one who wrestled with Jacob, called an angel there also. You see what I'm saying? So, Hagar encountered the Lord Christ before his incarnation. So did Jacob encounter the Lord Christ before his incarnation in a physical, some tangible physical way. Abraham did and others did. They knew who they were dealing with. It wasn't as though they thought that this figure was a mere angel or some creature from some other planet, nothing like that. They knew they were encountering God, and God specifically in the person of his son. Let's return to chapter 16, Genesis 16. Genesis 16. Actually, while you're making your way back, now why is this doctrine so important? Because of John 1.18. John 1.18, John 5.37, John 6.46, John 14.9, John 17.3, 1 John 4.12. All of these references, in one way or another, say that whenever God is revealed to us, revealed to men, it is Christ. John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. At any time, right? It says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God or the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The only way to know the Father is the one who came from the bosom of the Father, the Son. The Son explains the Father. The Son of God explains who God the Father is. That's what it says in John 1.18. John said, no one has seen God at any time, meaning God the Father. But they have seen God in the Son of God, who also possesses the deity as the Father. The one who, Jesus Christ. Jesus exegetes the Father? Yes. That verse in John 1.18, translated explain, is the original word where we get our cognate to exegete or exegesis. That is, to explain carefully from one 
to another. Yes, to explain. So, that's why this doctrine is so important. Because if we don't believe this doctrine, we're making these appearances into something that they're not. Okay? And this also is one of the aspects of unifying the gospel. The gospel from Adam until the end of the world is the one and same gospel. Because they all put their hope in the one and same Savior, mediator in Christ, our Lord and Savior. They put their faith in Him. Now back to verse 8. Genesis 16, 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Well, here the messenger, the Lord, acknowledges that Hagar is Sarah's maid, and she also acknowledges that. So immediately he is addressing her by the duty that is entailing this incident. She should not be leaving. She is the maid of Sarah, and she says, I'm her mistress. So there is already an obligation, and the Lord is instructing her, implying by this, that I'm about to tell you, you need to go back. What are you doing out here? You're doing wrong. You're disobeying. You're disobeying the, the obligations and the duties you have in life. When he says, by the way, where have you come from and where are you going? He's not speaking in ignorance. He's trying to draw out from her, trying to draw out from her what's on her mind so he can address it. Until it comes out into the open, he's not going to address it. So this is what God often does. He asks Adam, where are you? He asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? Not that God didn't know where Adam was. And not that God didn't know that Cain had just murdered Abel and his blood was on the ground. Because after Cain refuses to answer in Genesis 4, 4, 9 to 12, God answers that by saying, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I know what happened, but I was trying to get you to speak up and give me an honest answer. And you wouldn't. So that's what's happening here too. The Lord knows he's just getting an answer out of her to deal with the answer. And part of her her answer, she she says, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. She's fleeing from the presence of her mistress, Sarai. When she says mistress, Sarai, I don't think she's meaning it in a humble, obedient, teachable way. Commentators have taken it that way. But I don't think she's meaning it that way. I think what she's meaning is, I have a wretch of a mistress. And if you had to deal with her, you would do the same thing. I think that's what she means by this. She thinks that when she mentions that her mistress was Sarah, and you know that she was a bad woman, and she mistreated me and treated me harshly, so you're going to be on my side, right? That's what her hope is. Because... But then what happens? Verse, uh, verse 9 says, Then the messenger of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. She doesn't get what she wants. She wants to flee and she wants God to justify her actions, but God will not justify her actions. Instead, God tells her what she needs to do. And she does do that. Thankfully, she does do that later. 
but she did not desire that. Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Now, I said we would come back to the subject of her return to Sarah. There's a couple of references I've written on the board. The first one is in Exodus chapter 21. Please turn to Exodus 21, 26. 26 to 27. Exodus 21, 26 to 27. Why is it that she must return? We've already said because she is the slave of Sarah and Abraham, so she must stay. She has not paid for her um, release or manumission. She has not paid for it. There is no time that has elapsed. Nothing like that has happened. So she should stay with Sarah and Abraham. But under what circumstances can a slave leave? Exodus 21, 26. And if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. That means that it's likely that nothing even close to this was happening. Nothing like this was happening because if something like this was happening or about to happen, then she would have been justified in fleeing. But she wasn't justified, we know, because the Lord told her to return. Also, chapter uh, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 23, Deuteronomy chapter 23, 15, 15 and 16. Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. Now, this passage assumes that Deuteronomy 21, 26, and 27, something like that has occurred. And when something like that has occurred and you meet this slave, then you can keep that slave and protect that slave. Don't mistreat the slave. But since none of that had happened... The slave is obligated to return. Now, do we have an example of that in the Bible, aside from this example, Genesis 16? Yes, in the book of Philemon. Right. Philemon was a master. He had a slave. Paul meets up with the slave. The slave converts under uh, hearing the gospel ministry. He converts, but becomes a believer, and Paul sends the slave back to his master. He sends him back. Because there was no valid grounds for Onesimus to flee from Philemon. He just didn't like it. But now that he knows better as a believer, you can't just leave if you just don't like it. You have to leave on valid grounds. And since it was invalid, Paul commanded the slave to return to his master in the book of Philemon. Same as what we have going on here, I think, with Hagar and Sarah. And Abraham, return and submit yourself to her authority. We read the passage earlier, 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20. This is the same that we apply right here. This is the reason why. She was not treated harshly 
for unjust reasons. She was treated harshly for just reasons because she was a threat to the household, she was a threat to the marriage, and she was a threat to the promises of God by the way she acted. She likely had hoped that Abraham would favor her and throw Sarah out. Likely something like that. There was something more serious, and that shows by Sarah's actions. Now let's continue to verse 10. Genesis 16, 10. 16, 10. Moreover, the messenger of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. Greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. In your margins, it may be in the singular, or your Bible translation might have this verse in the singular. However, what it means is, you're going to have a descendant, you're going to conceive, and he is going to become a nation. He's going to become populous. That's what it means. We know that that's what it means because, for one, some translators rightly understand the context. Notice in verse 12, verse 12, it says, And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. So he, the descendant Ishmael, will live to the east of his brothers. He'll be separated from his brothers. And he'll have his own territory. Well, chapter 25 describes 25, 12 to 18. 25, 12 to 18 describes how Ishmael does have descendants. He does have 12 princes who come from his own loins and they establish a nation. 25, 12. Now, these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Ad-Baal, uh, Ad and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, and Hadad, and Tema, and Jetur, and Nafish, and Keramah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. Now, the number 12 was prophesied in, in Genesis 17.20. In Genesis 17.20, God said, I'm going to give Sarah a son, Isaac, and the promises are for him. But because Ishmael is your son, I'll bless him too, and I'll make him a, a populous nation, and 12 kings or 12 princes will come from him. That was prophesied in 17.12. Here's the fulfillment of it in chapter 25. And then seven, verse 17 says, 25, 17. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes toward Assyria. He settled, NASB, in defiance of all his relatives. When actually, back to Genesis sixteen twelve, I think it should be, and he settled east of all his relatives or east of all his brothers. Separate from his brothers with the nation of their own or tribes of their own, villages of their own, camps and towns of their own, not with Abraham's descendants through Isaac. Separate like that. Okay? So what we notice 
is that the Lord blesses Hagar and Ishmael with nationhood, with prosperity. Prosperity enough to maintain a nation, right? Right. Where they will have cities. They will have towns. They will have food. They will have uh, markets. They will have plenty of trade. And we know from Genesis 37 that the Ishmaelites were traders, and they were the ones that bought Joseph from Joseph's brothers and then sold Joseph in Egypt. So they were wealthy enough for that. And in Judges 8.24, when Gideon was fighting the Midianites or Ishmaelites, it says that they had gold earrings. So they were wealthy enough to possess those things. What's being said here? What's being said is that God shows His favor, His grace, His goodness, His love, His mercy, or whatever other word you want to use, even to unbelievers. Yes, Even to unbelievers, he grants this to them. Even though he has no intentions on saving them. Even though he has no intentions on saving unbelievers, he does good things to unbelievers. Now you might ask, how do you know that Hagar and Ishmael were unbelievers? Well, if you read Genesis, these chapters very carefully, you can see how a distinction is being made here between the line through Isaac and through Ishmael. You can see that. Another place is, remember Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. There we have Abraham, Sarah, Zion. And we have Hagar, Ishmael, and uh, Sinai, Mount Sinai. And the two are compared. And the persecutors, the heretics, the unbelievers... In Galatians, in that controversy, in that book, they are just like Hagar, Ishmael, and those who misunderstand the purpose of the Sinaitic covenant, Mount Sinai, and what Moses delivered there, who distort Moses. So that's a a paradigm of them being unbelievers, right? And the opposite, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, believers, and Zion representing faith the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, as it is called. So that's one place. Another place is Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 6. How do we know that Hagar and Ishmael were unbelievers? At least in Romans 9, we're going to deal with Ishmael by implication. Romans 9, 6. Romans 9, 6. Remember this chapter is describing how one becomes a believer. And the cause of faith is election or predestination. That's the cause of faith. The reason people believe has to do with what precedes their faith, that is, the elective, gracious choice of God to save them. So if that's the case, there will be distinctions made in this chapter. Chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. What's he explaining? 
He's saying it's not as though the word of God failed. Whether the word of God preached in Abraham's household or anybody else's household, it's not as though the word of God fails because the word of God's purpose is not to save everyone who hears that word. It's not the purpose. He says, they're not all Israel because they are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So whether you're using the patriarch Israel or Jacob or the patriarch Abraham, can't you tell? Don't you know? He's, his, is his implication. Don't you know Abraham had two sons? He had Isaac and he had Ishmael. Don't you know that Israel or Jacob, he had sons and daughters? Or can't you tell that Isaac had two sons and one was chosen and one was rejected? Right? Don't you know? Don't you remember all these incidents? So... Um, that's what he's explaining. So from this example, from Romans 9, we can continue reading other examples there. He's making this clear distinction that, yes, Abraham, Sarah, Rebecca, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, they were chosen, they were saved. But not, but not Hagar, Ishmael, Esau, Pharaoh. Not them. Or anyone who is like them, not them. This is an example of this grace that God gave to them with no intentions of saving them. Okay, so the further, we'll just deal with one passage on this and we can discuss it later some more. Why is it then that God would put grace and mercy in this sense, in this way, that is physically and even access to spiritual things, good spiritual things, why would he give Hagar and Ishmael this access? Psalm 92, 5 to 9. Psalm 92, 5 to 9 explains. Psalm 92, verse 5. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this. That when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. They rise up only to be destroyed. The higher and taller and stronger they are, the greater and harsher and harder it is, is their fall. That's what he's describing. They flourish in order for them to eventually be destroyed. Isn't that what happens not only to individuals, as Psalm 92 is describing, even as Genesis 16 is implying, it happens to nations. Assyria was raised up to destroy it. Babylon was raised up to destroy it. Persia was raised up to destroy it. Greece was raised up to destroy it. Rome was raised up to destroy it. That's the way it is. God raises up in order to destroy. That's why he's doing this to Hagar and Ishmael, giving them nationhood and all the blessings that come with it. Well, verse 11, back to Genesis 16, 11. 16, 11, he announces this because this is a promise to her. It's a promise, and the scriptures sometimes announce the promise of a child like this. 16, 11, 
Then the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. So she is pregnant. She will have a son. God says what the son's name should be. Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. God hears. God hears. That means, verse 11, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. God heard your groans. God heard even your prayers for deliverance. God heard. And God answered. Which teaches us that God, if he so chooses, he can answer these kinds of prayers. But when he answers these prayers, if these people don't repent, their blood is on their own head. God may give an unbeliever deliverance from some affliction, but if that unbeliever does not repent of his sins and believe in the gospel of Christ, then he's under condemnation because he did not follow through and keep going closer and closer to God by means of the gospel of Christ. He didn't do it. And that's what's happening with her. That's what's happening with her. Verse 12 confirms that Ishmael and his descendants will be a wild donkey of a man. When it says wild donkey of a man and have this conflict with others, the Bible sometimes calls evil people wild animals. Wild animals or evil beasts. Like it, it does in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 32. 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul calls his enemies wild beasts. So he's calling people, men, wild beasts. Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Titus 1, 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, Paul quotes one Cretan who describes his own countrymen, and he describes his own countrymen as always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Lazy gluttons in evil beasts. And even our Lord Jesus, he taught us in Matthew 7, verse 6, in Matthew 7, verse 6, Jesus taught us, Do not cast your pearls before swine, and do not give what is holy to dogs, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Matthew 7, 6. Even Jesus called people, wicked, unrepentant people, dogs and hogs. Jesus did that. And that's what's happening here He's described like that because that's the kind of wild and insane and demonic he was. Earthly, natural, and demonic, as James describes the unregenerate people. That's what Ishmael was. And conflict, conflict, conflict. Now, some commentators have alerted us to the fact that from this chapter and chapter 25, that the Arab people... Arabians that they come from Ishmael, which is correct. 
Through the Bible and throughout history, that is correct. The Arabian people come from this line. But what is incorrect is to say Islam came from Abraham and Ishmael. Islam did not come from Abraham and Ishmael. Islam was an invention in AD 600. From about 570 to 630. That's when Islam was invented. AD, 600 years after the ministry of Christ in the time of the apostles. After that, 600 years after that, AD. That's when Islam was invented. There is no evidence, no historical evidence, no shred of evidence that Islam existed before that. There are elements of Islam, such as paganism, symbol of the moon, worship of the moon existed among the Arabian peoples before that time. That's true. Those kinds of things were there. But Islam itself as a religion did not exist. So don't believe what you read in religious literature and political literature. Islam was invented in AD 600. It did not exist in the time of Abraham or Ishmael. Now, verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees, for she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? She gives this uh, place uh, a name, and, and she names it, You are a God who sees. That name actually is in verse 14, in Hebrew, transliterated in our Bibles. Therefore, the well was called... Be'er Lahai Roy E, the well of the living one who sees me. That's what that phrase means. The well of the living one who sees me. That's what the phrase means. That's what she named it. We've spoken of the fact that she saw God, right? She saw Christ. And not only that, but notice she is amazed that she's alive. She's not the only one amazed that she's alive after seeing God. Jacob, remember, 3230? Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, have I remained alive after seeing God? Or, I have seen God face to face, and yet I have remained alive. Jacob was amazed. Remember what happened to Moses. Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush. The bush is not burned up. The Lord speaks to him from there. The Lord identifies himself as I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he was afraid to look at God and he turned his face away. He hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Exodus 3, 4, and 5. And also God intimated that that was going to happen because he said, remove your sandals from your feet for the ground on which you are standing is holy. Why was Moses afraid to look at God? Because he knew what he was taught before that we cannot look on God and expect to live unless God is merciful and chooses to spare us in that moment. And he spared Moses too. And also, remember Isaiah Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's why he thought he was ruined, because he saw the Lord, and he thought he was going to die. But then God forgives him, and God says, no, I have a mission for you. Right? So, when the people of the Bible encounter God, they encounter Him in His holiness. They encounter Him in His righteousness. They encounter Him in His judgment. They don't encounter Him as a buddy or a pal. They don't encounter Him as a grandfather or great-grandfather who has a pocket full of candy for the grandchildren. No, that's not the way our father is. He's not a grandfather. He's our father. And the Bible, in the Bible, the father is one who disciplines, according to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1 to 13. Our father disciplines the sons whom he loves. If he doesn't discipline us, then we are illegitimate sons and not true sons. Hebrews 12 says. And even in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1, 13 and 17, if you address his father, the one who judges um, righteously everyone's behavior, live your life in fear during your time of stay upon earth. So if we address him as father, a good father, a biblical father, will judge righteously and you cannot pretend with him and play with him. As you would with a grandfather. Now, there is a place for the grandfather, but we're talking about the father. Yes. God is our father, not grandfather, not Santa Claus, not our pal and our buddy. That's not the way God is. They knew that. Now, if Hagar could know that, an unbeliever, if Hagar could know that, why is it that professing believers today don't know that? Why don't they know that? Why don't they behave that way, whether in church, in family, wherever they go, why don't they behave that way? As though they have the love and fear of God in the biblical sense. They don't behave that way. Many of them don't. Let's not be like that. Okay. Now, 14. Therefore the well was called the Er Laha Roi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Barad. Now this is this area around Shur, halfway or partially between Canaan and Egypt. Now, why is the name given to us here? The name, why is that given? That's where she went. That's where she was told about the promise of Ishmael. She was told about the nationhood of Ishmael. She was told about the need to go back to Sarah and all that. She was told all that at that place, right? By the Lord Christ who appeared to her. Look at chapter 24, verse 62. 24:62. That's where she had been. But 24:62 says, "Now Isaac had come from going to Be'er Laha-Roi, for he was living in the Negev." He was living in the Negev, the south country, southern part of the land of Canaan or Israel between Israel and Egypt. He was living there. Isaac was. And then also 25, 11. And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac lived by Be'er Lahai Roi. He lived there. Not Ishmael. 
Ishmael was sent out of the land, and even though that appearance of God came to Hagar there, it was inherited by Isaac. Figuratively speaking, metaphorically speaking, he did for a time in his life live there, actually did live there, but I'm saying it's also spiritual in that what the wicked possess or what the wicked enjoy and experience now, eventually we will own it all. Yep. 2 Corinthians 4.15, all things belong to us. Right. All things belong to us. Everything belongs to us because we've been adopted. Not because we deserve it, right. but because we've been adopted Amen. into the family of God by His choice. Thank you, Father. Yeah, that's Amen. why. And I think that's probably why we have this brief note of where this incident occurred. Then finally, verses 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. From this, we gather that Hagar related all these events to Abraham. She related all these events to Abraham, which she should have done, and it was good for her to do so. And then Abraham, based on her testimony, obeyed. Because he wasn't there to hear what the name of the son should be. He obeyed by giving this name to his own son. And finally, he did so at the age of 86. 86. We recited earlier, he was 75 when he entered Canaan. They waited 10 years before this chapter's incidents. And then a year after that, he um, has this son, Ishmael. <coughs> Abraham does. He's 86 years old. Then we'll see in the next chapter that it's not until he's 99 and 100 that the promise of Isaac and the birth of Isaac actually are going to take place. Um, actually, it's chapter 17 and 21. God was with them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.